Um, a little over a year ago, I got to travel to Israel with my family. And we got to see a lot of amazing things. The trip was beyond expectation. Um, we spent a few days in Jerusalem. And while the top of the Temple Mount was actually closed, um, it was during Ramadan and there was a little bit of unrest, but um, we walked outside the temple, we went to the Western Wall, um, and one of the things that we signed up for, which I, I didn't have strong feelings about either way, wasn't super excited, um, wasn't dreading, but we were going to do this tour where they had actually dug down um, to the base of the Temple Mount. It's 2,000 years old, things had happened, and um, the actual base was below the ground. And so we um, went on this tour, and all the things I learned were so exciting. I guess Herod the Great, like the guy that killed all the babies in Bethlehem, um, was quite the builder. And he saw, when he became the ruler of Judea, he saw um, this little temple and thought, okay, no, this is, no, 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 we need to make this way more impressive. So he left the original, I think, Mark, if you can pull the older, yeah, the original part was kind of already there, that white section that you see, but he was like, no, 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 this, temples need to be higher, they need to be more magnificent, so he um, decided to carve out of Mount Moriah a 20 football field cap for the mountain, and made um, what we, what still exists as the Temple Mount, so we went on this tour, and um, realized why this was so impressive. The smallest piece of stone in the Temple Mount is two and a half tons. And I've, look how crazy this is. This is what we saw on the tour. I don't know, did we get that video to work? Um, this is one rock starting there all the way down. It's 570 tons, 41 feet long, 10 feet tall, and 15 feet deep. Modern people are still trying to figure out how they even moved that rock because I don't think we can do it with all of our technology today. It's amazing what dictators can accomplish with slaves in short amounts of time. But, um, <laughs> but when Jesus delivered his last words of the Sermon on the Mount, foundations were at the forefront of everyone in Judea. There's no doubt in anyone's mind that this had just been accomplished um, within the last 30 years, it was fresh in memory, um, kind of the pride of the area, but a big point of contention. And that's when Jesus gave his last kind of teaching within the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 7, verse 24. Therefore, everyone who hears these words of mine and puts them into practice is like a wise man who built his house on a rock. The rain came down, the streams rose, and the winds blew and beat against the house, yet it did not fall because it had its foundation on the rock. But everyone who hears these words of mine and does not put them into practice is like a foolish man who built his house on the sand. The rain came down, the streams rose, and the wind blew and beat against that house, and it fell with a great crash." When Jesus had finished saying these things, the crowds were amazed at his teaching because he taught as one who had authority and not as other teachers of the law. Let's pray. Jesus, we just ask that you would um, teach us to sit in your presence. As we look at your words, as we kind of imagine you concluding um, this sermon, we just ask that um, we could have open hearts at your feet, that we could ingest it not only um, think that it's a good idea, um, but really think about how we could put it into, into practice. In your name, amen. 
So the Jews are under this moment where they're miserable under Roman rule. There's tons of, of conflict. The culture, it just defies all the Jewish ideals. Their values, morality, freedoms that Jews hold dear is kind of crashing around them. There are many factions within the Jewish faith. So Pharisees, the Essenes, Sadducees, Zealots, and all these different rabbis who seem to just have this new word on the Torah, new ideas of how the Torah should be practiced. And then you also have Herod, who was a Jew and became um, the Roman ruler of Judea. And as Jesus has become an adult, now it's divided between um, Herod's three sons. But Herod did a, mu- a bunch of amazing things. Um, that was probably the biggest, just like factual takeaway of going to Israel was realizing, I, I don't know how he did so much in-, in 35 years. He built an aqueduct that was 13 miles long at exactly a 1% grade. Um, he built countless fortresses, a harbor, um, just crazy, crazy stuff. But he was also a terrible person. He um, killed a lot of his family members. Um, There's kind of this rumor that one wife he thought just might be turning against him, so he um, just put her in a vat of honey and, like, crystallized her in there. I mean, he's just this awful, like, expert at being a terrible person. Um, Killed all the babies in Bethlehem just because he thought maybe Jesus was there. Um, but after his death, his sons, who had this great father figure, were, de- were divided the country between the three of them. So their politics are a mess, their culture is a mess, and their religion is also kind of a mess. And Jesus is saying, hey, don't worry about all of that. Don't build your life around that. Build your life around me. N.T. Wright says that in the last great sermon in Matthew's gospel, so at the end of the gospel of Matthew, Jesus warns that the whole temple itself will come crashing down because Israel as a whole has failed to respond to the message. So this idea of foundations being built on the right thing is throughout Matthew's gospel. And he's contrasting saying, look, look at this huge foundation. Like, look at this feat um, that seems indestructible and incredible. It's the pride of your life, but I'm telling you it'll be destroyed. 70 years later, it was. The temple on top was, the mount's still there. But um, it's built on the wrong thing, around earning, around blood money, around power, politics, dirty religion. It's just built around all the wrong things. N.T. Wright goes on to say, halfway through the gospel, which if you were here during our Mark series, you remember that Jesus promises that Peter's confession of faith will form the rock on which something very different will be built. The community that believes in him, Jesus the Messiah, and if we build our lives on Jesus' teaching, we'll be a part of the house that lasts forever. But to understand how it applies to us, we have to understand that it began as a very specific warning to his own people in his own day. It's just amazing to me as we've studied Jesus and his teachings um, all the time, but specifically going through the book of Mark for a year and a half and then going through the Sermon on the Mount, that his teaching, while so timely 2,000 years ago, is so timely now. Rough political landscape, religious fractions, factions, corrupt leaders. I mean, do you listen to the news? I, I do, and I, every week I kind of go through, like, should I be listening to this? Am I building my house on the sand by <laughs> continually ingesting all of this news? But Jesus seems to be saying a couple of things. Number one, believe me, over and above all of these other things that are vying for your attention and time, believe me. And number two, if you believe me, do what I say. 
That's his conclusion of all the things that he said. We've seen instances where um, it seems as if a person actually believes Jesus, like sees that he has authority, sees that he has power, believes what he says, but they aren't sure they want to follow him. We saw this with where he had these amazed crowds who we know will turn against him in the future. We see this um, people that are healed that are thankful but then don't really come back to him. We see um, the rich young ruler who had done all the right things, was essentially a good person, but when Jesus said, follow me, he was disturbed. He didn't know if that's what he wanted. They, don't, they believe him, but they do not move toward his teaching. N.T. Wright says, doing what Jesus says or not doing it. This makes the difference between a house that stays standing in a storm and a house that falls with a great crash. Um, we have a coworker at work and she got really into Bitcoin. And so I, she listened to all these podcasts, she bought some and convinced a lot of us to buy some. And um, she, I think she bought hers for like $2,500 at the time. And a couple of months ago, it shot all the way up to like $13,000. And so clearly we wish we had listened sooner. But um, she was debating because she knew, okay, this could go up even higher. Do I want to sell it? Do I want to sell it? All of us were like, just sell it. You're going to make all this money. So finally, um, a coworker just said to her, you know, in your bank, it says $13,000. And you're thinking you have a lot of profit. But until you sell that Bitcoin, you have nothing. And that stuck with me because, and she did, and she made a lot of money. Um, but that's, the metaphor does break down if you follow it too far, but she studied, she believed that Bitcoin would be a good investment. And she was right. She wasn't wrong. For her, it was a really good investment. But until she was ready to cash out, the money wasn't hers. It didn't matter what she believed about how good of an investment it was. At some point, she had to make this decision to act, to finally sell and make good on the investment. Ben Witherington says, our passage lets us know that faith without works is dead. It lets us know that the essence of discipleship is not just about belief, but also about behavior and ethics. Indeed, the latter is the ultimate revealer of what one truly believes. Which, if we're honest, it makes us a little bit uncomfortable. Because we like the idea of, well, well, uh, what I do matters, we don't like that. Because what happens if I do the wrong thing? It can kind of get confusing. Um, but I heard this example in um, salaried orientation a couple years ago, and I, I, it really stuck with me. Um, some of you are old enough to remember Enron. I had to Google exactly what happened. Um, but it's the seventh largest con company and in addition to being the largest bankruptcy and reorganization in American history at the time, it was also cited as the biggest audit failure. They were being audited and nobody revealed what was going on behind the scenes. But what was really interesting and kind of startling was their 65-page code of ethics. I'm just going to read you a few of the, the key things. Respect. We treat others as we would like to be treated ourselves. Ruthlessness, callousness, and arrogance don't belong here. Integrity. We work with customers and prospects openly, honestly, and sincerely. When we say we will do something, we will do it. 
communication. We believe that information is meant to move and that information moves people. We believe in offering our employees fair compensation through wages and other benefits. A house that was built on sand. When the crisis came, it was up in flames from $90 a stock to 69 cents. What they believed had almost nothing to do with what they did. In contrast, Oswald Chambers has this thought on what Jesus' invitation is. Build up your character bit by bit by attention to my word, says Jesus. Then when the supreme crisis comes, you will stand like a rock. The crisis does not always come. But when it does come, it is all up in about two seconds. There is no possibility of pretense. You are unearthed immediately. If you have built yourself up in private by listening to the words of Jesus and obeying them, when the crisis comes, it is not your strength of will that keeps you, but the tremendous power of God. The question comes up, I'm sure you've already thought about it, but what sort of house are you building? What are we doing? Are we doing Jesus' words? Are we only reading them, hearing them, and thinking of how impressive and fine they are? Oswald continues and says, What hinders us spiritually is not the devil nearly so much as in attention. We may hear the sayings of Jesus Christ, but our wills are left untouched. We never do them. The understanding of the Bible only comes from the indwelling of the Holy Spirit making the universe of the Bible real to us. The indwelling of the Spirit making the universe of the Bible real to us. The very last words, not just of this teaching, but of the Sermon on the Mount itself, is verse 28. When Jesus had finished saying these things, the crowds were amazed at his teaching. Because he has taught as one who had authority, not as their teachers of the law. A searing comment in the commentary I read by Ben Witherington says, Amazement should not be confused with commitment or discipleship then or now. Most often, I think that's us. Or at least it's me. I mulled over this week and I realized how often am I amazed at Jesus' teaching? How often do I get to the end and I think, wow, the Sermon on the Mount, it's affected so many people over time, Christians and non-Christians. It's just like the Mecca of where you want to be. I read the words, I listen to the teachings, I even turn them around and teach them here. But how many of those things do I put into practice? And that's where we are. We're at the end of this summer series on the Sermon on the Mount. And if you're like me, you've been amazed, you've been perplexed, you've been inspired and definitely challenged by these teachings. But the question that haunts me is, will I do them? Am I building a house on the sand or on the rock? Am I traveling the wide or the narrow way? As Doug said last week, am I producing good or bad fruit? And this week, as I was reflecting, I found myself wanting I was discouraged by the pace of my life, by the order of my priorities, by the fruit I was seeing. Everything was moving too fast. And the Sermon on the Mount sounds really good. Looking it over, reading it, yes, that's perfect, literally. 
But then you're at work and that same person is defensive and reactive in the meeting. Or you're a parent at home with your kids and they just have the same fight 30 seconds later and 30 seconds later and all you want to do is just pee by yourself. Or you're at your limit and it seems like everywhere you go, everything you do, people just want a little bit more from you. And before you know it, the sayings of Jesus slip into something that you'll start next week. Not to mention when you finally start them, where would you even start? The kind of person Jesus has described on the Sermon on the Mount is a person wholly different from me and probably wholly different from you. So where would you even begin? And as I typed this question earlier out, out earlier this week, just sitting over there in the corner, um, I was brought to tears by this tiny prompt in my thoughts. Where will you begin? A slight conviction that said, you're asking the wrong question. And it was, a, it was as if Jesus put into my mind, I am the narrow gate and the narrow way. I am the vine that produces the good fruit. I'm the rock that holds up the foundation of your life. What you need to practice is coming to me. What he says at the end is everyone who hears these words of mine and puts them into practice is like a wise man who builds his house on the rock. Not one who hears these words and does them perfectly the first time. Not someone who did the work and built this great house all by themselves like Herod built the temple, but those who practice. Practice what, you might say? Loving enemies, not judging? Not worrying, having pure thoughts and motives all the time? I don't know about you, but that always lasts about five minutes when I try to practice those things by myself. I just start judging myself for being so judgmental. But practicing going through the narrow gate, attaching to the vine, making Jesus the rock of my life, as impossible as the tasks of the Sermon on the Mount are to do by ourselves and our humanity, for some reason we often decide that it is easier than just approaching Jesus. Trying on our own is easier than just being with Jesus. Which is why I'm really excited about the, the next six weeks. Michelle did an amazing job of introducing um, our fall practice. But we'll be taking a practice of Jesus and focusing on it. This is something we want to do a couple of times a year. Choosing a practice or a spiritual discipline if, that you will go deep with. Put another way, we'll, we will spend time cultivating ways to be with Jesus putting into practice the things that Jesus does. And we're starting with Sabbath. Um, we have books if you'd like to pick them up. Um, all of our groups will be using them for the next six weeks. The material is basically verbatim from Bridgetown Church in Portland, Oregon. They've been doing practices for about three years now. Um, and I've been listening via podcast and loving it. It's been so personally helpful um, to me. And many times though, I've wished that there could be a group going through the same material in community. That it wasn't just me on this podcast trying to do these things, but that we could do them together as a community. So I'm really excited about jumping into this. In the next six weeks, um, you'll hear teaching on Sabbath. And then during the week, you'll meet with a group, a friend, um, maybe just your spouse or your roommate, or even just in your own time and go through some of the questions. Uh, first week, just to give you kind of a taste of, of the types of things that we'll be discussing. Dave's gonna teach next week on um, rest for your soul. 
some of the questions that are for group discussion. One, is the practice of Sabbath new to you? Was it part of your upbringing? Did you grow up with any kind of negative understanding about it? Two, how does the idea of practicing Sabbath make you feel? You feel nervous about Sabbath being too legalistic, skeptical about fitting it into your schedule, full of anticipation for rest or something entirely different. I'm really excited about working through these in community. It's very experimental, very open for discussion, for questions, for frustrations, for ideas. But all that to say, we want to do everything we can at Compass to inspire, encourage, and empower us to be people building life around Jesus. Not just a crowd who was amazed and, oh yeah, last summer we went through the Sermon on the Mount. It's a great talk. Glad we did it. But something that we are serious about. Something that we want to be transformed by. Not just hear and understand, but to practice and to do. I can't think of a better way to end the Sermon on the Mount than to move right into practicing the things that Jesus did. Dave just shared this verse with me, and now the phone is locked, but um, it was about um, building our house. It's not a house if we don't build it around Jesus. So let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, thank you so much for offering us yourself we just ask that as we move into this next phase this experiment of practicing the things that you do we just ask that we would know you we ask that we would become like you and we ask that um, you would teach us firstly how to be with you we thank you for who you are and for everything you've done in your name amen